Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I've gone back and forth as to where this section ends, and frankly, it's a a difficult section in some ways. Uh, I'm going to treat verses 14 through 18 next week, but verses 1 through 13 will be the subject of our of my preaching and and of our reading this morning. Uh, Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of righteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. We pray, O God, that you'd grant us understanding in your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, grant us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1985, there was, a, there was a movie called Pale Rider, and there are four horsemen of the apocalypse. The idea is built off of Revelation 6, and Clint Eastwood is uh, the pale horseman who is death. And he goes into a town called La Hood, and it's named after a, a, the, the, the bad guy in the, in the town. He's a wealthy uh, miner, and there are Stockburn's deputies that are hired guns surrounding him. And this conversation takes place, and this is the reason why I'll read it, because even in the movies, Clint Eastwood gets this idea. This is what is said. The preacher says, he says, now preacher, my name is Coy LaHood. Now this is the bad guy speaking. And the preacher says, I know. He says, well, do you imbibe, reverend? And he says, only after nine o'clock in the morning. And so they share a drink. And the bad guy says, when I heard there was a parson that had come to town, I had the image of a pale, scrawny, Bible-thumping Easterner with a linen handkerchief and bad lungs. Clint Eastwood says, well, that's me. And he says, and they drink to this health, and he says this, it occurred to me that it must be difficult for a man of faith 
to carry the message on an empty stomach, so to speak. I thought, why not invite this devout and humble man to preach in town? Why not let the town be his parish? In fact, why not build him a brand new church? I can see where a preacher would be mighty tempted by an offer like that. Oh, indeed. Then he'd be thinking about getting himself a batch of new clothes. We'd have them tailor-made. Then he'd start thinking about those Sunday collections. In a town as rich as La Hood, that preacher would be a wealthy man. And that's when Clint Eastwood, who is deaf, says, well, that's why it wouldn't work. You can't serve God, you can't serve God and mammon both. Mammon being money. Now, if the bad guys get it, and if they get it in the movies, then as Christians, don't we understand the same principle? I think sometimes we struggle to. <clears throat> there are questions about this passage, and there are lessons here for us as Christians about stewardship, about our the right use of money and what we do with resources, what we are living for, what our hard attitudes are concerning money and mammon and things that we have, resources and possessions. Well, there are questions in this passage, too, about what exactly some of these passages mean. What exactly some of these statements or phrases really mean? We, we look at the actions of the dishonest manager and we say, are the actions that he has undertaken, are they good? And certainly they are not. He is a manager, and so he takes and, and he, he leans on those who owe his master money, and he gives them an immediate discount, a substantial discount. Something like a thousand gallons worth of oil. Hundreds of bushels of wheat. There are questions about the dishonesty of this manager. Jesus is not, as we approach this passage, Jesus is not saying, here is a commendable example for you. He's not saying that. But he is saying, let me tell you a story. These are an action, the actions of an unjust a dishonest manager. And he settled these accounts on a significant discount. There are some other things that we have questions about. This man's self-serving reasons for why he did what he did. He does it because he is concerned for himself. His welfare afterwards. He, he's concerned that in the end, as his master dismisses him from service, he doesn't want to beg. And he doesn't want to work. He's like what, what uh, someone said to me in Mississippi, an older gentleman, a, an older rancher who had worked hard all his life. He said, you know, LaValle, there's one thing I like about you. You, you don't think that manual labor is the pre president of Mexico. And he meant that as a joke. He knew that I was a man who worked hard. Well, this is a man who doesn't work hard. We also have a hard time understanding this. what this master does. As the master praises in verse 8, this unjust, unrighteous steward for what he's done. He praises his shrewdness in doing what he did. Well, we'll look at some of these questions. And also verse 9, who are the they who welcome the individuals, who welcome those whom Christ is speaking to into the kingdom of God? That's a good question. There is some disagreement amongst friends over what that means. Is he referencing uh, in verse 9 uh, angels who, who welcome God's people into the heavenly realms? Or is he referencing the people who have benefited from the actions of Christian people who are right stewards over what they are given? 
Hopefully we can answer that question as we go along. I think the best way to to do this and approach this passage is to to work backward, establishing the very central thought at the very center of the passage here before us. And that's found in verse 13. If this passage is about one thing, it is predominantly about verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, who is this intended for? Who is Jesus speaking to? Is he speaking to the Pharisees or the disciples? Now, in verse 14 of chapter 16, it says this. In, now, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Now, they're in the background. They, they hear what he's saying. And, of course, Jesus has shared this particular story in the, within their hearing for the very purpose that they might hear and come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they, in fact, have loved money and not God. By the, state, by the very statement of verse 14, according to Luke as he writes this gospel, We are given to understand that the Pharisees and the religious authorities of the day did not love God. They loved their money. I'll put to you, though, that this passage is written to the four, the disciples. And that means that it's for you and for me. In verse one, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And the principles that he applies here, he makes five specific applications to his disciples. And, and in doing this, he is speaking to the disciples about their conduct as, as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so that tells us that this passage is, is for the disciples. And so it, it, it means that there are lessons that are relevant to you and to me. And so we should do well to listen. So within the story itself, there's a rich man and he has a manager. <clears throat> I don't know that any of us are rich enough here in this congregation. Maybe you have a manager whom you you really trust, who manages your your entire portfolio. Some of us have portfolio managers. Uh, We have a retirement account or 401k. Maybe we have savings. And so we do have hired managers in that sense because we have bankers who watch over our money according to certain principles we have laid out. We have 401k managers who follow our, our dictates as to whether or not we want our uh, assets to be more uh, higher level of risk or lower level of risks. When we take our vehicle down to the mechanics, aren't we entrusting ourselves into the hands of a manager and trusting that they will, one, tell us the truth, two, actually fix the car, three, when they say that they're going to charge us the bill and they charge us for parts, that they will actually put those parts on our car. Because sometimes when you go to a mechanic, they don't actually fix your car, but they'll be happy to charge you for it. So we all in some way benefit in similar ways by by having managers. And here is a rich man. He's well to do. And we know that rich persons, if they have a wealth uh, of, of, of resources, they would do well to put various places, uh, various pieces of their wealth and their, their estate into the hands of faithful managers to pay them a certain amount so that they will have then the obligation to steward that amount that they are in charge of and, and so that they will in some way benefit. This manager has done that. He has loaned out 
wheat against a crop. He has loaned out oil, and there are oil futures, and there are wheat crop futures that the master has benefit from. The ultimate goal here is that as he manages these things, he will manage them well. So that in the end, as he makes loans to farmers, as he gives to farmers against their crops, in an expectation of their, of, of their, uh, of, of their harvest, that he will do so wisely and on good terms that are favorable to his master. And at the same time, that in some way, serve for the common good. <clears throat> the, 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 the language explicitly is, is a home law-er. In other words, an administrator, someone who is home, someone who is, who is, who is wielding the law in, in, in legal legislation within the, 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 the framework of, of a manager or an administrator, and he's a trusted man who could transact business on behalf of his master. It's like someone who's given $100,000, you say, look, manage this amount well. And so that person will buy and sell stocks, buy and sell securities, and in some way, in the end, hopefully, realize a return on your investment. If you have a 401k, you've done that. If you have savings and you've made loans at banks, you've, you've had a manager at some point. Well, this individual was giving loans, distributing resources and goods, and he was required to provide a return for his master's investment. So we're told in verses 1 and 2 that here is this man, he's wasting his master's possessions. We don't, we're not told in exactly what the way was that he was uh, wasting his possessions. We're told nothing until verse 7. And there is the word, in most of our translations, the word dishonest. But <clears throat> as I read it in the New American Standard Version, the word is unjust. And, and I went back to the Greek, and surely within the Greek, the word is used... Uh, that, that is used as a derivative of righteousness, dikaiosune. And this word is a much shortened version. And so what we have here is a man who is unjust. Dishonesty may be a part of that, <coughs> but he is unjust. There seems to be something about him. Uh, we don't, we're not given any particular cases of how he was unjust, but well, we can see it in his actions. There's a deceitfulness about him. There's a self-rewarding spirit in this man. There's, a, there's something in this man where he wants to benefit physically and personally at the expense of his master. He's a self-serving person, very much like the Pharisees who are lovers of money. <clears throat> and Jesus, his intent is to use this unjust, sinful man as a representative of the Pharisees who love money, in order to teach his people, his disciples, principles which the, the Pharisees themselves excel at, but, but to make kingdom application from it. Verse 2, very simply, you're fired. You're fired. You're not going to manage my household anymore. What is this I hear about you? Charges have been brought. It was reported to him that he is squandering his possessions, and he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He's fired. It's the end of the road. 
lien holder as a manager can call a, a, up an account at any time, can can call in that lien. And so he does. And so the master says, of all that you've offered, of all that you're overseeing, close out your accounts and bring back what is managed. I want to see how significant my losses are. So he's, he has an immediate, this, this manager, this unjust manager, an immediate existential crisis. In verse 3, I'm not strong enough for manual labor. Manual labor, not the president of Mexico, but manual labor. Real, physical labor with his hands. He's been a manager for a while. I'm not strong enough to go out and dig. I, I, it's too late in my life to learn how to wield a hammer. It's too late for me to lift up walls or, or run electrical cord or sling burgers at McDonald's. Recently, there was a minister in our presbytery who had lost his pastorate, has been removed. It's been well over a year, and he has not found a job. I had an immediate problem with that. As we discussed the possibility of supporting him, <clears throat> because in reality, I don't care who you are, and I don't how, no, I don't care how old you are. If if what's in view is providing for your own family, wouldn't you go work at McDonald's? Amen. I would. I wouldn't be ashamed in the least. Amen. A man works. Woman works, and so a man must provide for his own family. And if he refuses to work, it would be wonderful if he can find things that are perfectly fit within his own skill set. But if you have to wash dishes in the back, which I've done, you'll do it. It's a good forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, especially with some overtime. Doesn't that pay the bills? Doesn't that pay the mortgage and put food on the table? The failure to do that says something about. The character of that person. And so this man says, I don't want to do manual labor. I don't know how to do it. I'm not strong enough to do it. I can't wash dishes while sitting at the counter all night, steaming water and, and soap and dirty food all over me. I remember what it's like to go home at the end of the night smelling like food and booze. Not because I drank anything, but because of throwing, emptying glasses and washing dishes. But he also says, I'm also too ashamed to beg. In other words, I still have so much pride in who I am as a manager. I've refused to sit at the gates and say alms for the poor. So he's saying, I won't stand out at the street corner in the center of, of the X saying, recently deposed house manager uh, in need will you help me provide for my family anything will help god bless he won't do that <clears throat> i'm not strong enough i'm too ashamed to beg and so in something else and what he's going to do in all his dealings I think there's something present within the text here, too, that in all of his dealings with human beings, other men and women, on, on behalf of his, his master, he hasn't made any friends. Isn't that telling? That's pretty significant. That here he is in this, in this immediate crisis, 
And he says, I don't have anyone on which to rely. I haven't engendered any goodwill to anyone, for anyone, with anyone. So, well, faced with extreme need, he has no friends in the world. It's, it's kind of like this. I have a neighbor across the street who I really like. He's a good friend. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have friendship as far as I can go with him because he's not a believer. But, but we are friends and, and we do good things for each other. And he has come over to my house and he has helped me uh, to replace my garage door. And he has fixed it uh, countless times. It's been a real blessing. Selflessly, even when I pressed money on him, he refused money. And he recently has had surgery on his leg. And so last night I was able to get out and clear some snow in his driveway. And I said, you're not supposed to get out there and and lift that snow. So you get back inside. He called me this morning to thank me. And I reminded him, you've done a lot for me. There's something that motivated me to clear the, the driveway for him. And that was because he had engendered my goodwill by selflessly caring for me. You see... That's what individuals will do. We think about tomorrow. We think about engendering goodwill. And so here is this man. He's a a manager of a master's house, a rich man's house. He has not engendered any goodwill. In other words, he has served himself and no other. That's his crisis. He has no one to rely on. His entire management is not endeared him to anyone. He is isolated. He has nowhere to turn. His scheme, I'll take all of those accounts that are still owed and I'll go to them immediately, reduce the costs, probably get rid of all the usury, all of the the interest of what they might have owed, uh, perhaps even his own own, uh, royalties from these loans. And he says, give me a... a lesser amount. It's it's kind of like charging a reduced rate for an immediate return. We hear radio commercials on the radio for rush tax relief and tax tigers and others who will negotiate a lower settlement price with the IRS for an immediate payment of a great debt. And so they'll say they even have examples. $26,000 was owed by Joe and he settled for $100 with the IRS. That's exactly what he does. And so he goes to the person and he says, you owe a thousand of this, reduce it by 50% and write 500. Your debt will be settled. Who wouldn't do that? If your bank came to you and you owed $150,000 in your home and they said, give us $75,000 at the end of the week and we'll reduce that amount. Wouldn't you take it up? I would. I'd beg, borrow, and steal to find $75,000, but I don't have it, but I'd find a way. And that's what this man does. And so he finds an immediate return for the master based upon these things. As he's doing this, he's not really concerned about his master. His motivation is that he will have someone to rely on. And so he's going to engender goodwill, an IOU. And so you can almost hear him saying, all right, now sign that principal note and sign over the, the, the reduced amount to my master. And then he says, good doing business with you. You owe me one. And that's his principle. You owe me one. 
The master commends this individual for his quick thinking and for the accounts that were collected on, probably with no interest, but represented a recovery, at least in some way, of what was leased. The spreadsheets are settled. The losses don't appear to be very significant. The manager is dismissed. But now he has something to rely on. So here's an example of a shrewd man, not necessarily righteous. He is unjust, according to the passage. And he employs what he cannot eternally possess and what is not his own in order to secure his own temporal interests. He's making a shrewd calculation in his own self-interests, and he is commended for it. And Jesus makes a number of applications to his disciples, and thus for us. The first of which is simply this. Christian, make wise use of, and with an eternal focus, make wise use of the resources you've been given as managers and stewards. Make wise use. Wise use. I know that what we have as we proclaim what we possess, the money that we have in our account, we would say, I have X in my bank account. We would say, I drive, I own a 2019 whatever, Toyota Camry, Subaru Legacy, whatever it is. We would say, this is my house These are my couches and pillows. This is my kitchen, our bathroom, my checkbook. And as we use that language, it's not inappropriate language, but as we use that language, are we instilling in our mind that all that we have is from God and that we are mere stewards? Or are we engendering the idea that this is what I possess? These are my things and not yours. We are to make wise use of all that we have. And we need this refreshing reminder. All the possessions that you possess, all the money that you have, all the retirement funds that you have, all of the managers over all of your wealth, the home that you have, the the car that you have, the children you have been given, the wife or husband that you have, of all that you have in your bank account itself too, God has given that to you. You and I, we are stewards of it. I know you've worked, you've labored, you've, you've striven, you've, you've, you've gone out into the world, you've worked those 40, 50 hour weeks, 60 hour weeks, longer. But who gave you the skills that you have? And who gave you the interview for that job? And what steps, uh, and w- in what, what, in, in what way were you, did you accomplish this apart from God's providence? Isn't it the Lord that upholds you and provides for you and gives you your daily bread? Don't we look to him? Isn't it by his grace that you're still employed? How many moments we have come right to the very edge of being fired? How many moments we have come right to the edge of real financial ruin? And yet God in his mercy has kept us. Very simple principle is present here. Worldly people make shrewd calculations about their resources. They use their resources to good effect. And you and I as Christians, we are to make good and wise use of our resources as well. We are not to adopt uh, an attitude that says all of that I possess is mine 
and, and I brought it into my life, and I am the one who has procured these things. But we are to say, what I have been given and what God has given me in stewardship, I will wisely and carefully use because they are resources from him. We should show at least as much shrewdness and wisdom in my, uh, our use of the resources that God has provided for us and entrusted to us. We would do well to remember that. I am a steward. I am a financial steward of all that I have been given. We as Christians are steward of the resources, stewards of the resources that God has given to us. And we will give an account of our stewardship one day. There's a call here to store up our treasure in heaven. Good works, righteous stewardship of worldly resources. The resources that the world worships, the resources that the world pursues with fervency, you and I are to be wise and good stewards of, because they will have an eternal significance as to how we use them. We are to have an eternal focus on our temporal use of things. I know I've said it before frequently, Christians, we, we commonly live beneath our privileges, don't we? We don't make wise use of the resources that God has entrusted to us. There was a question in a discussion recently on uh, Facebook with a minister friend of mine, and he was asking, why are, why are Sunday evening prayer times so sparsely populated with people? Why are they poorly attended? And my answer was, well, I think it's because people don't follow. Uh, people are, are, are largely unfaithful in their own private devotions and prayer life. I know it's something to struggle, that the Christians struggle with. I know it's common, but it cannot be excused. We live beneath our privileges. We have been blessed by the eternal God. He has welcomed us into his presence. And he says, come worship and gather with God's people on the Lord's Day. How often when we are slightly ill or slightly inconvenienced, we leave off the Lord's Day worship. Somehow because it, it's less important than all the other things that take place in our lives. Would we ever play the same game with our worldly employers? We don't. Oftentimes I think the best argument is, well, if you would go to work, then go to church. But I think, I think we, will, we often readily, easily lay aside... Although this is a faithful congregation, I'm speaking generally about Christians, we we sometimes will lay aside the privilege of gathered worship, thinking one week is not all that significant, but we are not thinking about eternal. We are not thinking from an eternal perspective, are we? I think one of the most greatest disappointments, the most grave disappointments when we enter into eternal life is How very much we failed to do that we knew we ought to have done and had no excuse to not do. The things which we wish we had done. At 53, going on 54 years old, I often in my mind and my heart think about time when I was young that I wasted. Things that I wish that I had done. 
Shouldn't we, as we get a little older, shouldn't we have a deeper sense of the eternal significance of our days and of our moments and think a little more deeply about our reasons and motivations for doing what we do and, and, and think a little bit more about the, the eternal value of serving God and the merely temporal value of the riches we enjoy and give us, that give us ease and peace. <clears throat> This passage is calling us to store up treasure in heaven. The truth is that we live our lives, we embrace our worldly resources, and we, we do make this connection in our thoughts all the time. We, 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 we think that our, our, our resources are our greatest good. We think what is most needful is more money. What is most needful is more time. What we need more than anything else is a little bit more rest. But doesn't the Bible call people who have that perspective fools? You fool, Jesus says. Don't you know that your soul will be required of you this very night? We neglect what is most needful. We forget the unlimited power of God to address our needs. The question is, do I need more money? Do I need to work more hours? Or really, do I need to fall on my knees and pray and ask my God to help me? It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work, but that we should work in a lesser way, in in the sense that I have a lesser priority of working to provide for my family than I do of the greater priority of worshiping and living for God. We forget that God is our greatest good. Why don't we take ourselves to prayer more often? Because we are not convinced that God will give us what we want. And it's true. God will not always give us what we want. And sometimes we are almost convinced that we don't need God. We need money more than we need God. We need more resources more than we need God. We need more rest and peace, financial peace. Relational peace. But we are people commanded to approach the Lord boldly and to ask of him for our daily bread. To ask of him daily for the forgiveness of our sins. To keep short accounts with God and to continue to rely on him. Our use of money is not trivial. It is of eternal significance what we do with it. Our use of funds should show us that what we care about and our, our, what is going to be our eternal state. There's a second uh, thing, lesson that the Lord Jesus conveys to us this morning in this passage. Christian, do not be dishonest or untrustworthy in small matters. Now, what we're talking about are matters like signing off on the, on the bulletin board at work, uh, being dishonest about time off. Or being dishonest about the amount of time you've taken for a break? Or signing off saying that a task was finished and we didn't actually do it? Dishonesty in the course of our work. Do lies come easily to our lips? Are we trustworthy? Do we speak the truth even to our own harm? Is it true that when we say, yes, I did this, that our employer will immediately take and absolutely assume that we are telling the truth because we have been truth-tellers all the course of our lives. What exits our mouth is from our hearts, and that's the message that Jesus is making from this passage. 
What comes out of your mouth by way of lies or mistruths, that's an indication of the state of your heart. Small things are the greatest indication of the state of our hearts. God requires faithfulness in the use of his resources entrusted to our care, and he requires faithfulness in small things. That's why I'm thankful this morning as we prepared for worship and came early. There was our church opener there doing uh, the things that uh, required to be done, putting out signs and turning on lights. And the other one who is regularly here, who is faithful every single week, notified and let us know that he couldn't be here today. There was a stewardship over his, his tasks that was just as outstanding as showing up. And in both ways, both men committed to opening this congregation and our church building and preparing this place for us. Both made contact. Both followed through on their responsibilities. Both were faithful in their own right. I'm thankful for that. That's good stewardship. That's faithfulness in small things. God requires faithfulness to, from all of us for the stewardship over this church and our place in it. The entire course of our lives, we are stewards who will stand before the Lord. J.C. Ryle in this passage says, He who is dishonest and unfaithful in the, un, in the discharge of his duties on earth must not expect to have heavenly treasure or to be saved. Thirdly and finally, Christian, you cannot love God and mammon. Mammon is more than just money. It's, it's resources. It's, it's the stuff that makes up our life. And it's more than that. It's what other people think of us and our desire for others to think well of us. It's, it's all that encompasses this world and its priorities and all that it loves and all that it lives for. Turn the television on for five minutes and you'll see what mammon is and what the world loves. This is a reiteration of the same verse from Matthew 6.24 read by our elder this morning. No human person has the capacity. I think sometimes we think that, well, I can love money just a little bit. No person has the capacity to be devoted to two contending masters. They are both after us. It will be either God or mammon, one way or the other. God is unwilling to share. We cannot have a divided heart. We love something else and we love God. It's impossible. With an eye on eternity, we must bring everything under the lordship and mastery of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that as we enjoy the benefits which the Lord provides as we are able to pay off the bills that we owe and to to enjoy driving that newer car, and as we go into our homes and lay down on our couches, and as we write checks and as we purchase things that are meaningful and helpful for us and our families, that we remember a couple of things. All that I have is from the Lord. So when I write those things and I make use of the resources God has given to me, my heart is to abound with thanksgiving to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Secondly, we ought always to be watching over our hearts. 
always watching over our hearts so that we don't fall more inordinately in love with this world and the things of this world and place more trust in our resources and in our money than we do in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have financial security today because you have filled your bank account. You do not have financial security because of your personal net worth. You have the security that you have because the eternal God has given it to you. The only question is, will you be faithful in the right use of what God has given to you? Will you think eternally? Will you think with an eternal significance about how you'll distribute those funds and what you will do with it? Do you respond well when there's a need in the congregation? Do you give generously? When you hear that a brother or a sister is in need, do you give? Do you help? So that, according to verse 8, so that, or 9, are you making friends for yourself by means of the wealth of the unrighteous or, or worldly money so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings? Will you, will you have friends when you come into heaven? Will, will they be there at the door remembering and greeting you with, brother, sister, enter well into the joy of the Lord for you have abounded in the work of serving the Lord and you ministered to our needs. Didn't Jesus say this very thing? You did it when you did it for the least of these. You did these things for me. Lord, when did we clothe you when you were without clothing? When did we provide food for you when you were hungry? When did we give drink to you when we were with you when you were thirsty? When you did it for the least of these. So, dear friends, let us be generous with one another. Let us be generous with the kingdom of God. Let us store up treasure in heaven and thus show that we love the Lord more than we love anything else and that the Lord is our master. We are his servants and stewards. Let's pray.